Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another round of Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and it's always a blessing to be able to study the scriptures with you. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of your scripture study for this week. Today, we'll be studying Alma chapter 5 through 7. These are masterpiece chapters. I hope they'll give us each a chance to look inward and see some things, maybe that we don't want to see, but that we need to see. Alma 5 has more question marks than any other chapter in the Book of Mormon. And though we won't answer every single question together, each one really is worth pondering. In some ways, this is the preview of what Judgment Day might look like or feel like as we go through a personal interview of sorts with the prophet Alma the Younger. This chapter actually reminds me of a talk that startled me. This was given back in October of 2014 from a member of the Quorum of the Seventy that I'd never heard of before, Elder Klebingat. But right out of the chute, he just riveted my attention by asking these questions. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your spiritual confidence before God? No wind-up. This was the pitch. Are you ready to meet Him? Do you have a personal witness that your current offering as a Latter-day Saint is sufficient to inherit eternal life? Can you say within yourself that Heavenly Father is pleased with you? What thoughts come to mind if you had a personal interview with your Savior one minute from now? Would sins, regrets, and shortcomings dominate your self-image? Or would you simply experience joyful anticipation? Would you meet or avoid His gaze? Would you linger by the door or confidently walk up to Him? One riveting paragraph with nothing but questions, seven of them to be exact, each of which forced me to really look inward and wonder, what would that interview look like one minute from now? Well, it's been six years since that talk was given, so I'm glad I've had more than one minute. But in the intervening time, I have given a lot of thought to those questions. How prepared am I to meet my Maker? How would I feel in a personal interview with Christ? I actually remember a time in high school, I was applying for a scholarship for college, and part of the scholarship involved an interview. Now, there was a whole lineup of people that were interviewing for this, and I remember sitting there, this was back in L.A., and we were all waiting to be brought in to be grilled, we thought, by this panel that was going to decide the winner of the scholarship. And I remember looking down the line and seeing how nervous everyone was, and I was surprised that I didn't feel that way. And as I pondered, I thought, why aren't I more nervous? Why don't I feel like everybody else seems to feel? And it hit me, I'm a Latter-day Saint. Talk about an unfair advantage. I've been having interviews since I was a little kid. And compared to the bishop, these guys are probably going to be a piece of cake. They don't have the gift of discernment. They're not going to ask me about worthiness issues. I can step in and confidently respond to whatever they have to ask me. And I did. And then ended up getting the scholarship. Little did I know that all those bishops' interviews as a youth would literally pay dividends. Well, the kinds of questions that we're going to see here are very different than the kinds that a scholarship panel would ask. They're a little bit closer to the kind of things that we would respond to in a Temple Recommend interview. I've conducted a lot of those over the years, and it's always interesting to see people and how they respond to those questions. Not in their answers, their yeses or nos, but in their feelings. How hesitant some are to say that they're worthy, even when they are, and how happy other people are to be able to share their testimony, their standards, and the desire they have to be able to answer for the life of discipleship that they're living. Like I said, Alma chapter 5 has more question marks than any other chapter in the Book of Mormon, 42 to be precise. It's the Book of Mormon's equivalent of Job chapter 38 through 40, where there are 63 question marks. But that time, it's God asking the questions of Job trying to help Job come to grips with what he's going through by understanding that he doesn't understand all that God does. Alma's purposes are somewhat different. He's not asking questions to get us to understand God. He's asking questions to get us to understand ourselves and to see whether or not we're ready to return to God, if we're really like him or not. If we are, then hopefully we can turn a lot of these question marks into exclamation points. Kind of like Joseph Smith does in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's the chapter that has more exclamation points than any other chapter in the standard works. Fifteen of them. Joseph's on fire. Well, Alma the Younger's hope is that we catch fire as well, with the help of this introspection that he's encouraging us to participate in. Why is he doing it? Because he's got a mess to clean up. This interview in chapter 5 grows out of the challenges that Alma recognized at the end of chapter 4. Challenges within the church that prompted him to take off his political hat, to confine himself wholly to the holy priesthood, 
We've already seen plenty of chapters where the church is struggling based on the persecution that they're facing. But by the end of chapter 4, the church is the problem. We see things like pride and materialism, independence from God, riches and worldliness, scorn, persecution of others, contentions, envying, strife, malice. The people in the church, at least certain people in the church, were worse than those outside of the church, to the point that the church had become a stumbling block to spirituality rather than a stepping stone towards it. Now, of course, not everyone in the church was that way, but enough of them were that Alma felt compelled to cry repentance to those who supposedly had already covenanted to take the Lord's name upon them, to always remember him, to keep his commandments which he had given them. Well, they weren't. And so Alma, beginning at church headquarters in Zarahemla, begins to go throughout the land to preach the word of God to those that supposedly already knew it. In verse 1, Alma begins to deliver the word of God unto the people, first in the land of Zarahemla, and from thence throughout all the land. Verse 2, these are words which he spake to the people in the church. And again, it's church members that need this. We often talk about the threefold mission of the church, to perfect the saints. Well, they needed perfecting. To proclaim the gospel. He's doing that too. To redeem the dead. Well, in some ways, these were the spiritually dead. In fact, through much of the rest of Alma, at least the first half or so, that threefold mission is one way to kind of wrap our brains around what is happening here. And once the church has accomplished those missions, what are we ready for? We're ready to battle the enemy of all righteousness. There's the war chapters. We're ready to endure the last days. That's the book of Helaman. And we're prepared to witness the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. That's third Nephi. But it all begins here with setting the church in order, beginning in downtown Zarahemla. As it says in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, first set in order thy house. The church has to be a holy place to bring people into. Imagine if the sons of Mosiah, with all this success on their missions, if they were to bring back all of these Lamanite converts into a church that was persecuting, prideful, materialistic, those poor anti-Nephi-Lehi's would have wondered, what have we gotten ourselves into? We have to set our own lives in order first. We have to set the church in order. Or as the Lord says later in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 112, in preparing the world for the second coming, he says, Upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me. That describes these Nephite church members to a T. And so before we turn our gaze to these wonderful missionary chapters in the book of Alma, the church that the missionaries are bringing people into needs to be cleansed and purified. They need to cleanse and purify themselves. Before we get into the specific questions that Alma asks to try to facilitate that, I do want to say something about the tone that he's using as he does so. If you turn ahead to verse 43... This is one of my favorite scriptures about teaching the gospel. Over the years, as I've trained early morning seminary teachers, I've often asked them to look in Alma 5.43 for the three P's of gospel teaching. Unfortunately, only one of the words actually begins with P, the way Alma wrote it. But if we translate his statements into our words, I think we'll see the three P's. Alma 5.43, Now, my brethren, I would that ye should hear me. Sounds a little like King Benjamin. I haven't brought you here to trifle with my words. Open your eyes and your ears and your hearts. For I speak in the energy of my soul. There's the first P. Energy. Or as I would say, power. Passion. It's hard to light a fire in others if it's not burning within ourselves. So teach with passion. Teach with power. Teach as Alma does with all the energy of your soul. Second, behold, I have spoken unto you plainly that ye cannot err. Now that's an obvious P. It's not enough to teach with power and passion if we're not being understood. That's like rallying the troops but not giving them any clear direction on what to do with all of that roused energy. But to speak plainly. That was Nephi's forte, right? I glory in plainness. Or as he says at the beginning of 2 Nephi 31, I'm going to speak so plainly, not just that you understand, but so that you cannot misunderstand. I don't want you to err. How do we take heaven and bring it down to earth in a way that makes sense to people? Plainly. And then third, I have spoken according to the commandments of God. What P word do I associate with that? Permission. I have God's permission 
to teach the things that I'm teaching you today. These are the things that God would have me convey. That's relevance, personal application of all that could be taught. It's the Holy Ghost saying, this is what they need. This is what I'm commanding you as a teacher to convey to my students, my children. Again, King Benjamin follows this same example, and we need to as well. But Alma the Younger, in trying to whip the church into shape, is teaching with passion and power. He is teaching with plainness, and he is teaching with permission. Amazing things come as a result. 44, this is exactly how the Lord wants him and us to teach. I am called to speak after this manner according to the holy order of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Yea, I am commanded to stand and testify unto this people, the things which have been spoken by our fathers concerning the things which are to come. Yea, I am commanded to stand and testify unto this people. But verse 45, this is not all. Because what fills us with passion and power, what grants to us God's permission to speak plainly the things that we know is the fact that we know certain things. It's testimony that's driving our teachings. It's not curriculum. It's conviction. It's truth born of testimony. Power born of personal experience. In 45, he says, Do you not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. How do you suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Notice he's not giving the angel credit here. The appearance of the angel forced Alma to stop in his tracks and realize what he was doing. It proved to him the reality of God and God's power, but didn't necessarily confirm every theological doctrine that his father had been teaching them. That testimony came, according to Alma the Younger, by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. I doubt he was counting the two days and two nights in that spiritual coma as his period of fasting and prayer. If I counted being asleep as fasting, I fast every night. He did learn some amazing things in that ordeal. Rising back to consciousness, marvel not that we must all be born again. But I imagine there were other periods of fasting and prayer, many days worth, so that he might know of these things for himself. The angel's appearance may have halted the downward spiral, but the upward climb was on Alma. And it was his fasting and prayer that helped him reach the summit of testimony that he's now bearing. As he says, now I do know of myself that they are true. Sound a little like Joseph Smith coming out of the sacred grove. I have learned for myself, as he says to his mother. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. 47, his testimony continues. The words which have been spoken by our fathers are true. 48, I know of myself that whatsoever I shall say unto you concerning that which is to come is true. I say unto you, I know that Jesus Christ shall come, yea, the Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth. I know, I know, I know. He says it eight times in these four verses. The energy he mentions in 43 is not the energy of an adrenaline rush. This isn't just enthusiasm that he's trying to work up in people. Actually, maybe it is, but only if we take enthusiasm for what it really means. Theos is the root for God, as in theology. Well, enthusiasm literally means God within. Sadly, we've lost that connotation with the word now. But originally, enthusiasm was that sense that God is speaking within us and through us. And that's the source of Alma's power and passion, the testimony of truth that was in him. But why use questions? Why not just teach and testify? He does. But why so many questions? If you remember our discussion from last week, whether it was King Mosiah's abdication of authority back in Mosiah 29, or Alma's abdication of political power in Alma 4, in both instances, it was a recognition on their part. It has to come out of you. It's not going to be the commands of a king, but it will arise from the voice of the people. Or in Alma's case, it's not the proclamations of a chief judge. 
It's the persuasion of a high priest. Real change. The kind of change that has to take place in the church if it's going to be a welcoming place, a place worth coming into. The change has to emerge from within. It cannot be imposed from without. They're going to need to see themselves for what they really are. Exactly what King Benjamin was trying to do. These unprofitable servants, once they see themselves as such. In Alma's case as well, once you see yourself for who you really are, you'll know who you really need, which is Jesus. As a result, you will turn to him for the kind of changes that only he can affect from inside each of us. In some ways, Alma the Younger is playing the angel in this act, asking questions in hopes that it would halt the church from its downward slide, that they would be forced to grapple, as he was, with his own natural man tendencies, followed by, ideally, their own period of fasting and prayer for as many days as was required until they could say, I do know of myself that I need to change, and that through Christ I can. That's the point of all these question marks. In fact, all 42 of them can be boiled down to only three. And those three questions really are the same question, just asked in three different ways. They're all in verse 14. Alma chapter 5 verse 14 really is the point of this message from the prophet. Now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, number one, Have ye spiritually been born of God? Number two, have ye received his image in your countenances? Number three, have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Isn't that the same question that King Benjamin was asking? To see if his people had experienced a new birth so that they could take upon themselves this new name, that of Christian? To see if they had been born of him, become his sons and his daughters, spiritually begotten? There is newness in those three questions in verse 14. Born of God. A new image in your countenance. Is there family resemblance there? This is the who's your daddy lesson that we talked about in Mosiah chapter 5 all over again. This mighty change in your hearts. A new creature. A new birth. New family resemblances. New genes. Alma is asking church members, are you different because of your membership? He's asking converts, have you truly been converted? Which means, have you been changed? Remember Elder Bednar's experience as a teenager? A zealous Latter-day Saint teenager with a non-member father? Who came to church all the time to support the family, but had no interest in joining it himself. And yet, a young Elder Bednar, can't you picture him? Passionate, plain, probably with perfectly well-set hair as always. Talking to his dad, when are you going to get baptized, dad? When are you going to get baptized? And his dad always saying, I'm only going to join the church because I know it's true, not for you or for your mother. But remember that story that Elder Bednar told of the time that he kept needling his dad about being baptized and his father finally said to him, okay, son, you claim to be the members of the true church? Well, having been raised Catholic, I could say the same thing. You claim to hold the holy priesthood? Well, we claim the same. So instead of you asking when I'm going to get baptized, i got a question for you, son. When I go to church, when I go to priesthood meeting particularly, how come the bishop has to plead, has to twist arms to try to get the priesthood holders in your ward to do anything? The men in your church don't seem to be any more actively engaged in God's service than the men in mine. If your church really is true, if you really hold the priesthood, shouldn't that make you different? That was the point. Shouldn't these things make us different, changed, born again, more like Jesus? His image in our countenances, that we look like him, we act like him, we think like him, we feel like him, we serve like him, we love like him. Isn't that the goal of the second coming? That we will see him like he is and we will be like him. It reminds me of a missionary email I received over a decade ago. Because I spend my life teaching young adults, I get to know a lot of missionaries. And so I get a lot of emails back from them as they're serving around the world. This one has stood out in my mind ever since. He talks about wanting to learn what compassion is. He talked to his mission president about it. But the lesson really came when he lived the principle himself. 
He talked about a set of missionaries in his district that was having a really tough time. One was nearing the end of his mission and was thinking more about life at home rather than life in the field. As this elder describes it, they had just lost hope. They lost hope in working, in being obedient, in being happy. I could tell by going on an exchange with them because their apartment was trashed. Literally, there was trash everywhere. Dirty clothes thrown on the floor, dirty dishes piled in the sink, trash overflowing in garbage cans. It was bad. Well, this elder came up with a plan. They rallied eight missionaries together and set up this game plan. They were going to secretly sneak into the other missionary's apartment, clean it up, and then get out before they got discovered. Well, he describes the event, the gleaming floors and sparkling toilet, but then he ends the email with this. I'll use his words because they're so powerful. Again, this is a 20-year-old young man, the type that's probably not used to finding great joy in cleaning up other people's garbage. He said, as I was reflecting on what had just happened, I noticed that we were cleaning up some pretty nasty stuff. But no one complained. No one questioned why they had to clean the toilet and not someone else. No one wasted a single moment. All of us worked hard. All of us did our part. And we were joking and laughing the whole time. I think that might have been an example of compassion. There are some absolutely wonderful elders I've been blessed to serve and serve around. Later that day, I had a chance to talk to the elders on the phone. I could tell that a change had taken place in them. For the first time this transfer, they sounded happy. They were laughing and singing and telling jokes. My happiness came when I found that they were happy. I think this might be what it's all about, serving and helping people in need. That brings true happiness. And then this final paragraph, which blew me away. All I know is that before my mission, it would never have even crossed my mind to clean someone else's junk. I know that the church and gospel of Jesus Christ have been restored to the earth because of the change it has made in me. I am different than I used to be. Can we say that? Can we say that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm different than I used to be? That's what Alma is after. Have you been born of God? Have you received his image in your countenance? Have you experienced a mighty change of heart, not just of outward behavior, but of inner desire, of motivation, of disposition, as King Benjamin calls it? What does Jesus do? He changes things. And so how do you know if you're a true disciple of him? Because he's changed you. Oh, the church needed so much change. So that's what Alma is after, a change that has to come from within. So let me ask you some questions that point in the direction of these three great questions, really the one great question. Have you been changed by Christ? Now to try to make sense of Alma chapter 5 and all these 42 question marks that appear, I'm going to try to boil it down into three kind of subsections, all of which are aiming towards that great goal of change through Christ spiritual rebirth, new image, new heart. One set of sub-questions has to do with the past and what they are remembering from it. A second set of sub-questions has to do with the future, specifically Judgment Day and if they're prepared for it. And in between those questions of looking backwards and looking forwards is this set of sub-questions about current lifestyle standard of worthiness, the present. And if I remember my past, and anticipate a certain future, then my present will be lived in a certain way. That's what Alma is hoping for. The first set of question marks begins appearing in verse 6. Now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long suffering towards them? And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? Notice the repeated phrases in verse 6. He doesn't just say, do you remember? He asks, have you retained in remembrance? We talked about remembering in a previous episode. Remembering, putting back together the parts that form the whole. But even remembering sometimes comes across as something outside of us, ourselves. Oh, I just remembered. It popped into my head. As opposed to this active, 
ongoing, retain in remembrance. This is a mindfulness when it comes to the experiences that we've had with God, a bringing it back instead of just waiting it for it to pop back in, to retain in our remembrance. Not only does he strengthen the verb, he adds an adverb. And with each of those three questions, he asks, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance? So it's not just remember, it's retain in remembrance. And it's not just retain in remembrance, it's have you sufficiently done it? Have you done it enough? Now, how do I know if I've done it enough? It's one thing to go, oh, I remember that. It pops in every once in a while. It's another thing to say, oh, I do my best to retain it in remembrance, to keep it in mind. But sufficiently? How do I even know? Well, in this case, the proof will be in the pudding. How do I know if I've done it enough? If it's actually working. If it's doing something to me. If it's making me want to make certain changes in my life. Then I'm sufficiently mindful about certain things. And what are those certain things? The first question was about captivity. The third question was about deliverance. And squeezed between them was the attributes of God that brought them from captivity to deliverance, namely his mercy and long-suffering. That's what Alma is asking them to retain in remembrance, that God is a merciful and long-suffering father who specializes in taking people out of captivity and bringing them into deliverance. Can you hold that in your heads? Enough that you'll actually allow the same thing to happen for yourself? To recognize your own captivity? You're in the same sinking ship. And to have trust in your own deliverance? But knowing that that's only going to happen through the mercy and long-suffering of God? Alma helps them remember these things. He wants to help them retain it in their remembrance. So in verse 3 and 4, he talks about his own father. Hiding in the waters of Mormon, setting up a church there, in bondage to King Noah. And yet in verse 4, delivered out of their hands by the mercy and power of God. See the three again? In bondage, even as they were hiding in the waters of Mormon, they had to hide because of that captivity that they were suffering under. Deliverance out of King Noah's hands, how mercy and power of God. Verse 5, Here's round two of the same process. They're now in the land of Helam, right? But then the Lamanites come, the Amulonites are over them, captivity all over again. Middle of five, they were in captivity, and again the Lord did deliver them out of bondage. How? By the power of his word. So captivity, bondage, God's power, God's word, moving them from one to the other. What effect did that have? Verse 7, God changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. Alma is confident the same can happen to these sleeping saints in the land of Zarahemla. They were in the midst of darkness, just like his audience is, but their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. They were encircled about by the bands of death and the chains of hell and everlasting destruction did await them. There's captivity. But were they destroyed? No. Were those bands and chains broken and loosed? Yes. That's deliverance. All through the mercy and power, long-suffering and love of the Holy Messiah. Retain that in your remembrance and do it sufficiently to know that the same can happen to you. He fast forwards from past to future, from captivity and deliverance to final judgment, starting in verse 15. Do you exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward? Again, this future-facing, forward-looking faith. Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality, this corruption raised in incorruption, to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? If you do look forward to final judgment, then I hope you have rehearsed the process of captivity to deliverance often enough that you know that the same can happen for you. Because we're all in bondage to sin. We're all deserving of the bands of death and the chains of hell. But if we know God's mercy and long-suffering then ultimate captivity need not be our final consequence. But it's going to take some change on our part to begin with. Verse 16, can you really imagine to yourselves 
that you hear the voice of the Lord saying, Come unto me, ye blessed, for behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. If you're envisioning that 60-second from now final interview that Elder Klebing got encouraged, is that what you envision? Or are we more like verse 17, imagining to ourselves, and yes, this would be pure imagination, that we can lie unto the Lord and say, oh, no, no, of course, my works have been righteous works upon the face of the earth. Do we really think he's going to fall for that? I remember once as a junior high school kid lying to my mom. I won't get into the gory details. My family knows it and still makes fun of me for it. But she actually bought it. She was either the most gullible or the most trusting person imaginable. Well, eventually the truth did come out and I got busted for it. But God is not gullible. We'll never slink away from the judgment bar going, I can't believe he fell for that. As it says in the book of Hebrews, haunting phrase, that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it as clearly as can be. The all-seeing eye of God we talk about. Go ahead and imagine to yourselves that you can lie. Someday you'll be corrected in that misconception. A much more likely scenario for the unrepentant would be verse 18. Brought before the tribunal of God with our souls filled with guilt and remorse. Having a remembrance of all our guilt, a perfect remembrance of all our wickedness. Yea, a remembrance that we have set at defiance the commandments of God. This is exactly what Jacob described back in 2 Nephi 9 verse 14. That we will have a perfect knowledge of all of our nakedness. Connect that word from Jacob with that word from Hebrews. That all things are naked and open. We will be fully exposed to God's all-seeing eye with nothing to cover our nakedness, nothing to hide behind. That actually clarifies for me something that I had wondered about from my own temple worship. I won't go into detail in order to protect the sacredness of that ordinance, but I always wondered, why are we reminded of our own nakedness even when we're covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ? Why hold on to our own inadequate attempts to hide from God's view, to cover our own nakedness, when it's painfully insufficient. The Lord comes and offers us true coverage. That's what the atonement is in Hebrew. To cover is to atone. Then why not let our futile attempts just disappear in the past? I think because there are some things that need to be retained in our remembrance. Our own captivity, for example our own pathetic attempts to cover our nakedness so that once we're truly covered by Christ's atoning grace, there is a comparison in our minds, a visible, powerful, memorable comparison between captivity and deliverance, between our attempts to cover ourselves and God's power to truly wash crimson sin into white, white wool the coat of the lamb, covering the blood of the lamb, which we have spilt. In verse 19, can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? Isn't that what Psalm 24 is asking for? Clean hands and a pure heart. Elder Oaks has talked about that. That clean hands are our actions, but pure hearts are our attributes, our motives, it's not just what we do. There's the hands. It's what we think. It's what we feel. There's the heart. It's not just our deeds. It's our disposition. Have we been changed sufficiently in both regards? The second half of that verse, he asks another question. Can you look up having the image of God engraven upon your countenance? Again, hinting back to that threefold question he asks in verse 14. Do we look like him? Isaiah describes the opposite when he says that the show of their countenance doth witness against them. We talk about sometimes, oh, he has guilt written all over his face. Well, can we have innocence written all over our face? Namely, the face of Jesus, his image in our countenance. That beautiful final verse in Moroni 7, that we will be pure as he is pure, for we shall be like him. This actually made me think of something completely new for me from section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants. 
when Joseph's dedicating the Kirtland Temple, in verse 53, he prays, Inasmuch as they will repent, thou art gracious and merciful, and will turn away thy wrath when thou lookest upon the face of thine anointed. I've always loved that verse, that looking at us, he will see guilt, but turning his gaze towards his only begotten son, and he will see innocence, an innocence intense enough to more than make up for our guilt. But this thought of having his image upon our countenance, I wonder if God has to turn his gaze at all. If he looks at us and looks deeply enough, if Christ's image has been engraved upon our countenance, then God can turn away his wrath without having to turn away his gaze because he will see the face of his anointed in our own. My youngest daughter looks a lot like my wife. And there are times my heart just melts looking at her because of the mother that she reminds me of. To see that image in that little countenance. And I wonder if God's heart will melt into compassion, into mercy, into long-suffering, when he sees the face of his anointed in our own. But that can only come through rebirth, of seeking that family resemblance. Otherwise, notice verse 20. Can you think of being saved when you have yielded yourselves to become subjects to the devil? Again, that's the other possible answer to the who's your daddy question. And there's family resemblance on that side of the tree as well. Do you really think God can save you when you've been subjected to the devil? Subjects to a king of your choice rather than to the king of kings. Subjects, in fact, is only one word. In verse 25, he talks about children of the kingdom of the devil. In verse 39, he says, if you're not the sheep of the good shepherd, then what fold are you? There's only one other possibility, right? There's only two shepherds out there, a good one and a bad one. And in this dualism, if Christ is not your shepherd, the shepherd of your choosing, then the devil is your shepherd. You are of his fold. Who can deny this? Whosoever denieth this is a liar and a child of the devil. 41, he says it again. If you bring forth good works and hearken to the voice of the good shepherd, then you follow him, you're in his fold. But if you bring forth evil works, the same becometh a child of the devil, for he hearkeneth unto his voice and doth follow him. And that's who pays your wages. Verse 42, the wages of death. It's all that the adversary can pay you with. The child of the devil, the sheep of the devil, the fold of the devil, the subjects of the devil, as opposed to subjects and sheep and children of God. These are the choices that we're making. And we're making them every day, right now, in anticipation of that future day of reckoning. Verse 21, if we've chosen poorly, you will know at that day that you cannot be saved. Cannot be. Not will not be. Cannot be. God cannot deny his own justice. He will force no man to heaven as we sing in Know This That Every Soul Is Free. There can no man be saved except his garments are washed white. Notice the need for washing there. None of us makes it through life unscathed, unstained, unblemished. But we have to be willing to have our garments washed. Yea, his garments must be purified. Not pure, but purified. Until they are cleansed. Not clean, but cleansed. From all stain. Through the blood of him of whom it has been spoken by our fathers. Who should come to redeem his people from their sins. Sin is understood. It's inevitable. It describes each of us. But if we will come unto Christ, then garments in need of washing can be washed. Garments that were not forever pure can be purified. Stained clothing can be cleansed through the blood of Christ. How would you feel otherwise? Verse 22. How will any of you feel if you shall stand before the bar of God, having your garments stained with blood and all manner of filthiness? Behold, what will these things testify against you? 23, they'll testify of our guilt. 
And how will that make us feel? 24, do you suppose that such an one can have a place to sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all the holy prophets whose garments are cleansed, not clean? Again, these past participles are some of the most merciful examples of the grammar of God. These holy prophets, their garments are cleansed and as a result are now spotless, pure, and white. And how would you feel to pull up a chair beside any one of them, knowing how hopelessly underdressed you are in comparison? Joseph Smith talked about this occasionally, about what we'll feel to pull up a chair next to the ancients. As he was languishing in Liberty Jail and the people were being driven out of the state of Missouri to a swampy marsh on the eastern side of the Mississippi that was far from becoming Nauvoo the Beautiful. He talked to them about Abraham and Abrahamic tests and Abrahamic sacrifices, wondering if they would be able to measure up to these Abrahamic comparisons. Joseph wanted to. The saints wanted to. We will want to as well. I sometimes joke that my father-in-law is the closest thing to Job that I've ever met. I picture him pulling up a chair next to Job and feeling very comfortable in sharing his story. I think Job will probably be the one going, wow, I thought I had it bad. Me, on the other hand, I'm going to feel very sheepish pulling up a chair next to Job and comparing my minor inconveniences to his major tests and trials. We sometimes talk about comparing scar stories when we meet people. I don't think any of us will want to compare stain stories. Instead, if we've repented, we can all rejoice that our garments have each been cleansed. And it's only because of the blood of the Lamb that we can ever hope to claim to be spotless, pure, and white. Do we see what Alma is doing here? Look to the past and see captivity and deliverance bridged over by the divine attributes of Christ. Look to your future. Which will you imagine? Which do you envision for that future? Continued captivity or a merciful deliverance? One or the other will occur. And with that in mind, those two possible scenarios, what are you doing right now with your life? What behavioral changes, what attitudinal changes, what motivational changes need to take place right now in hopes of facilitating the ultimate change, the mighty change of heart? Those are the kinds of questions he begins asking in verse 27, forcing them to look themselves in the mirror and grapple with what they see. Verse 27, have ye walked keeping yourselves blameless before God? Could you say, if you were called to die at this time, remember, interviews coming up in 60 seconds, and could you say it within yourselves? We typically know when we're lying. It's one thing to feign innocence for someone else, but could we say these things within ourselves, without flinching, knowing that we know better? Can we say within ourselves that we have been sufficiently humble? There's that pesky adverb again. Sufficiently? Really? You mean it's not enough to be humble? I have to be humble enough? How do I know? As I said earlier, you'll know based on the results of that humility. If it's causing you to change, then yes, you're humble enough. If it's not yet doing that, then there's still more humility to be developed. Can you say within yourselves that you've been cleansed and made white? Again, not clean and white, but cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ who will come to redeem his people from their sins? Verse 28, have you been stripped of pride? What a verb, to be stripped of it, to have it yanked off of us. I remember as a little kid, little, little kid, on a family vacation, we were at a motel with an indoor swimming pool. We hardly ever went on trips like that. We thought we'd arrived. Now, I was old enough to be able to swim and old enough to be something of an adventure seeker, but also young enough that my dad was still really in shape. 
ex-Marine, okay? Uh, and I remember being in the swimming pool with him and playing games with my family, brothers and sisters and so on. And I said, Dad, I just want you to launch me. I want you to throw me out of the water as far as you possibly can. I remember crouching into kind of a ball, putting my, facing him, putting my hands on his shoulders, and then standing on his cupped hands. And I was trying to pump him up. I said, Dad, I just want you to throw me over your shoulder as far as you possibly can. I want to fly, Dad. Let's, I have the tiger, okay? And so he's going, okay, son, you ready? And he's like, one, two, and there I am, ready to just launch. I wanted to be airborne. Now, I think both of us were full of adrenaline by now. And so one, two, by the time he got to three, he launched me so hard, I went flying across the swimming pool. But he shot me out of the water so fast that my little swimsuit went and there was this naked little kid flying through the air until he landed in the deep end. I was horrified. I imagine my mom was too. And then I was, Dad, throw me my shorts. And he threw me my swimming suit and all was well. It was just our family in the pool anyway. But I was stripped of pride that day. I was stripped of all, everything. I had nothing to cover my nakedness. And so when Alma uses that verb, it stings a little. It wasn't my choice. We typically don't talk about stripping ourselves. We usually say we took our clothes off. Stripped is something that often happens to somebody else. Like President Benson said in his classic talk about pride, God will have a humble people. We can either choose to be humble or we will be compelled to be humble. In other words, we can either take our pride off or we will be stripped of it. Either humility or humiliation. Maybe that's a better word for it. I was humiliated. In other words, I was humiliated the moment I was stripped of my pride. There are still times I pray to Heavenly Father asking for more time. Times of praying, Heavenly Father, I am trying to take off my pride. Please give me time to do so before you strip me of it. He used the same verb in 29 when it comes to envy. Have we been stripped of that too? So many of these attributes of the natural man. Are we putting off the natural man? Or are we having the natural man stripped from us? Because we wouldn't lay it aside ourselves. That process of removal is part of the mighty change that we all must undergo. To put off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Christ, a new child, a new child of him. If we can't answer in the affirmative about removing those lesser attributes, then in 28 and again in 29, he tells us we're not prepared. We're still in the captivity instead of the deliverance stage that we saw in that first set of past-looking questions. And that is not bode well as we look forward in those future-facing questions about judgment. So prepare. Prepare quickly, he says in those verses. The kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. Such an one hath not eternal life. Now hold on to those thoughts, those phrases. Preparing quickly. The kingdom of heaven being soon at hand. We'll come back to them in just a moment. But a few more of the present tense questions. We've seen stripped of pride. We've seen stripped of envy. Remember, this is a church that has fallen prey to materialism to neglect of the poor. It, that's all pride and envy driving those things. In verse 30, is there one among you that doth make a mock of his brother or that heapeth upon him persecutions? That's another element that Alma has seen among church members. Seriously, go back to Alma 4 and you'll see all the problems that are driving these questions in Alma 5. Just like Jacob 5 answers the question posed at the end of Jacob 4, Alma 5 is asking questions in response to the problems seen back in Alma 4. Jump ahead and you'll see more of them. In verse 53, can you be puffed up in the pride of your hearts? Will you persist in the wearing of costly apparel, setting your heart upon the vain things of the world, upon your riches? That's exactly what these wicked church members had been doing. 54, will you persist in supposing you're better one than another? After all that Alma's father had done in trying to set up an equality through the church, and even an equality through the people, 
by shifting things to the reign of the judges. Remember all that we saw back in chapter 18 of Mosiah and later in the book with no hierarchy, really? Teachers no better than learners? Priests no higher than parishioners? Do you really think you're better than each other? Will you persist in the persecution of your brethren who humble themselves and walk after the holy order of God? In 55, will you persist in turning your backs upon the poor and the needy in withholding your substance from them? Because any of this persistence, persistence in pride, persistence in envy, persistence in persecution, persistence in neglect of the poor, all of it boils down to this phrase from the beginning of verse 53. Can you lay aside these things and trample the Holy One under your feet? Because that's what you're doing. The exact opposite of how beautiful upon the mountains are those that publish peace. Well, how about these feet that trample underneath them the Holy One of Israel? Can we really fool ourselves into thinking that we can look up to Him at that moment of judgment if we have been looking down on Him through a lifetime of trampling Him under our feet? I would so much rather have Jesus wash my feet than to have me dirty him through my trampling. How are we doing? How are we doing with this interview? Looking now at my present, what do I perceive of my future? Do I remember those past experiences of captivity and deliverance? And with that in mind, do I have hope that I might emerge from my captivity into a glorious deliverance through the atonement of Christ? That's Alma's hope all along. He's not trying to shame us into change. He's not trying to force us. There's no compulsion here. That's why it's all questions in hopes that they will have a desire to change on their own. 